Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, Elf Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we'll be getting a view on the Middle East from Capitol Hill with Alyssa Slotkin. She's the U.S. representative for Michigan's 8th District, and she's a member of the House Armed Services and Homeland Security Committees. Representative Slotkin came to Congress in 2019 after serving three tours with the CIA in Iraq and she's held senior national security positions with the White House and the Pentagon. Although she's only in her first term in Congress, Alyssa Slotkin has already established herself as a leader on national security issues, and she represents a key potential battleground Michigan district in the upcoming election. She is a subject of a feature article in Politico magazine this month titled, Alyssa Slotkin is Sounding the Alarm. Will Democrats Listen? by Tim Alberta. I encourage you to read that. And I encourage you to listen to my conversation with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin about the Middle East coming up after this short break. If you care about a strong, principled role for American leadership in the world, you need to care about what's going on inside the country and be up on it. Um, just like you are on national security. If you care about the American role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis Saudi, um, it is connected to um, understanding the pulse of domestic politics and where people are feeling, not just in Washington or in New York or in California, but in the middle of the country. And so I guess I would just challenge um, this idea that somehow the COVID global pandemic is not a national security issue, right? That our divisive politics that are splitting us apart is not intricately connected to how strong of a role we are or are not able to play on the world scene. Welcome back to On the Middle East. That was U.S. Representative Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, who will be talking with us today about some of the issues at the top of Congress's agenda dealing with the Middle East. Let me just mention three of these issues before we get started. First, there have been letters and statements from prominent House and Senate Democrats expressing opposition to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's declared intention to enact some Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Some members of Congress have even suggested restricting or conditioning USAID to Israel so that USAID would not be used for annexation if or when Netanyahu decides to go ahead. Second, the U.S. military continues to operate in the Middle East under the congressional authorizations for military action against al-Qaeda after the 9-11 attacks in 2001 and the authorization against Saddam Hussein's Iraq in 2003. Members of Congress have increasingly called for an end to these previous authorizations, saying circumstances in the region have changed dramatically since then, and also with an eye on restricting the Trump administration's ability to take action against Iran, so that if such action were contemplated, the administration would be required to take its case to Congress 
for a new authorization for military force. Third, the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, is being taken up in Congress this week, and there are provisions in it restricting or conditioning arms sales to Saudi Arabia for its support or prosecution of the Yemen war and calling for enforcement of sanctions against Turkey for the purchase of the S-400 Russian missile defense system. Those sanctions have not yet been implemented by the Trump administration. Now, a common thread, if there is one in these three issues and perhaps other issues, is that there may be a trend in both parties and perhaps in the country to step back from commitments in the Middle East, especially given the COVID-19 economic and social crises here in the United States. We'll get into all of this and more with our guest, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Alyssa Slotkin began her career of service after the Al-Qaeda attacks on 9-11. She was recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency and served three tours for the CIA in Iraq. She also held senior positions at the White House, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and the Pentagon, where she served as Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, overseeing policies on Russia, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. She was elected to represent Michigan's 8th District in 2018. She serves on the House Armed Services and Homeland Security Committees, and she joins us today from Capitol Hill between votes on the NDAA. Representative Slotkin, welcome to On the Middle East. Thanks for having me. Members of Congress have gone on the record expressing concerns about Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu's declared intention to annex some Jewish settlements in the West Bank. Some members of Congress have even threatened to condition or restrict aid to Israel if Netanyahu goes ahead with annexation, which appears for now to be on the back burner. Where do you stand on annexation and on conditioning USA to Israel if he goes ahead? I mean, listen, obviously my experience on this is colored by um, uh, being in the Pentagon and in my portfolio being, you know, the sort of the day-to-day responsibility for the U.S.-Israel defense relationship. Um, but for me, I mean, I approach Israel the way I approach other allied nations. You know, we have um, legitimate disagreements on things that happens all the time with allies. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't believe in the safety and security of the Israeli people. And indeed, many things that this prime minister does frustrate me. Um, and this latest move on annexation, I think, is beyond, for me, frustration. It's actually, um, you know, if you listen to Israeli intel and defense officials, I, I think there's some real security risks, strategic security risks to, to, to taking this move. Um, so I'm concerned about it. I have a problem with it. Um, I express that in uh, a letter that I, was signed by almost 200 members of the House. But that's different from saying, um, well, we're allies, but if you, you know, anger me or frustrate us on a policy level, we don't believe in your overall security. That's different. Um, and so I, don't, I haven't signed a letter to condition aid and to threaten um, people's physical security because I happen to have major disagreements with this prime minister. And it's that distinction that I really make in a lot of my engagements. Um, and, you know, I worked hard 
to improve things like intel sharing and defense cooperation under my time at the Pentagon. But I did that in a context where I was also um, able to have extremely frank conversations with Israeli military and, and intel leaders um, on the deep problems I had with some of the political decisions that were going on in their country. So that's kind of how I approach it. I'm glad to see annexations on the back burner. Um, I am concerned that um, uh, this kind of a move um, may be something that people are pushing for because they see an American election coming up, because they're trying to like play into American politics. I think that's a real problem and um, I would ward against that. Um, but it does seem to be on the back burner for right now and I think that's the right strategic move. Do these letters and initiatives as well as vocal progressive members of Congress who are critical of Israel, does all of this signal any trend away from the long-standing bipartisan bedrock support for the U.S.-Israel relationship? Or do you think this mostly centers on concerns and differences simply on annexation? I still think the vast majority of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle um, have a consensus around supporting the security and safety of Israeli people. I, I just don't think that that has... Um, broken or crumbled to the, to the extent that many outlets cover it. What I do think is that there's a very, very vocal minority um, who are gaining in strength, who are, you know, have an outsized, um, you know, microphone on platforms like Twitter that are certainly um, uh, taking up this issue and championing it. And I think what's just really important is that, you know, the U.S.-Israel policy has been characterized by bipartisan cooperation for certainly my whole lifetime, but long beyond my lifetime. And I think if you care about the future of the region, if you care about safety and security in Israel, you should care about Israel maintaining strong ties, not just with you know, the one party. And so it's incumbent on everyone um, who cares about this issue to say, wow, I, I've got to really um, make sure that I'm adapting to the times and um, that that core bipartisan relationship has been so critical for the long-term security of the Israeli people. So um, it's incumbent on anyone who cares about the security in Israel um, to be thinking about how to, uh, how to change and morph and adapt um, to make sure we always maintain bipartisan support. Do you support the Trump administration's peace to prosperity plan? Do you think that has a, a, a chance of getting talks going? I don't. I mean, I think the, the thing that, that um, you know, as a, someone who was trained as a Middle East expert, you know, and, and, um, and then went on and did Middle East analysis for the CIA, you know, one of the things that sort of was a cornerstone of my training was that the United States was um, at our best moments trying to be a positive and neutral um, uh, arbiter to bring both sides together. And while, of course, you know, there's, I'm sure that's a controversial statement, um, whether it was through Oslo or through all these other um, attempts, um, we really had the leverage and the strength with both parties to say, you know what, we've got we've to get to the negotiating table. And some of the historic peace agreements were brokered by us. Um, and what I think this does, this plan, is it just puts the thumb so heavily on the side of the Israelis that it provides no incentive for 
the Palestinians to come to the table. And so we can say over and over, they should come to the table, they should come to the table. But if you're not creating a negotiating environment um, that where they feel like they're going to get things, where moves are unilateral, um, listen, I did negotiations for as a huge part of my job for seven years at the Pentagon. Um, that's not the way that you bring parties together. So I don't see it moving anywhere. Um, and, um, you know, I think what will be interesting is if we have a new administration after January, um, is, is it possible to um, sort of reestablish um, America's role in being that arbiter? I don't know. What amendment you introduced that wasn't included in the uh, final NDAA bill would require a sunset clause for any future military authorizations Congress approves. Uh, the Defense op Appropriations Bill that's up next week, I think, takes another run at revoking the authorizations for the use of force after 9-11 in the Iraq War, uh, in part to prevent the administration from using force against Iran. Could you, you tell us a little about those efforts where you stand on it Sure. I mean, you know, I think taking a step back, um, I think most people, Democrats and Republicans, um, feel like our, you know, the authorization of military force, that the, the authorizations that we have on the books have just gone on and on and on without, you know, proper sort of regular review, making sure that engagements we get in um, have a normal and healthy conclusion. And obviously Afghanistan being our longest war is the one people think about. But when you come from a district like mine where you have just so many veterans who've served multiple, multiple tours in these wars after 9-11, it's the veterans who are saying like, you know, these large conflicts in the Middle East, like it's just hard to know when they begin, when they end, how to get out of them um, with our heads held high. Um, and obviously this one cuts close to home. My husband was 30 years in the army. I'm retired as a colonel, and my stepdaughter is a brand new lieutenant I'm about to go overseas. So um, th this one is important to me. The, the, um, I, the proposal that I had um, was that any authorization of military force, of course, has to come to the, the Congress. That's per the Constitution. But it has an automatic sunset of three years. And if an administration wants to continue fighting in a foreign war, more than three years, that's fine. They've just got to make the case again to, to Congress. You can't just keep riding on those same authorities. And this would be prospective, not retrospective. So any new um, uh, authorizations of military force would be have a sunset of three years. Um, we are trying very hard to maintain the bipartisan nature of this um, Pentagon budget. Um, we need both Democrats and Republicans to pass this in order for it to pass the House. Um, and so in the back and forth of negotiations, um, the other side was not willing to, to support that authorization of military force. Doesn't mean we're done. It just means this vehicle is not the right vehicle. Now, there's been a long-standing, like long before I got here, um, attempt um, to repeal the 2002 Iraq authorization of military force. That is not about Al-Qaeda. That is not about, you know, ISIS and, and son of Al-Qaeda. That is about the authorization to go to war in Iraq. Um, and I think most people feel um, that uh, the, life, the life span of that authorization of military force is no longer required. We're, we are friendly with the government of Iraq there. It's not Saddam Hussein. Um, we are training their forces. And so there's been a longstanding attempt 
prior to me being here of trying to repeal that authorization of military force. And actually there's a number of Republicans, as I understand it, who support it. So we'll watch that one closely. Not sure I'm gonna see it get out of the Senate, but all this back and forth is part of a larger conversation that people like me who have a national security background, who have a personal relationship um, to so many in uniform um, want to have, and I think the country needs to have. And certainly my constituents back home want to know that we're not going to get involved in unnecessary wars that spend blood and treasure without greater accountability. Should the U.S. be able uh, to undertake actions like the killing of terrorist leaders like former ISIS head Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or Islamic Revolutionary Guards Commander Qasem Soleimani without authorization? Did you consider that within the purview of the executive branch? So listen, I, we have a uh, very clear national security law on the books. Um, let's be honest about it. I mean, the president has the authority under um, uh, the 1970s War Powers um, Act. He, has the, he or she has the ability to um, uh, go after a terrorist, to make any, frankly, kind of military move they feel is in the defense of our national security interests. They need to notify us um, within a certain time after that action is taken. Um, and then they have 60 days. They have a clock that then starts. Um, and they can engage in that activity for that period of time. And if they need to go beyond um, those 60 days, they should come back to Congress and seek authorization for mil of military force. Um, so the, the president has significant authority to go after um, individuals um, and activities that threaten the U.S. government, uh, that threaten our national security interests. Um, so it's not, for instance, when we killed Qasem Soleimani, um, my quibble was not that he technically had no authority to do that. He had the authority to do it. Um, my quibble was such an act risked pulling us into a wider war. And I just wanted him to remember in our war powers resolution that we did that he vetoed um, right in the middle of COVID, right in late March. Um, it, I wanted to just restate that either um, intentionally or unintentionally, if you are drawing the United States into another war, you must come back to Congress to seek approval. Um, it didn't change the current laws on the books. It just frankly restated fact. So um, we can quibble on whether I thought it was the right thing to do or whether any of these moves are the right thing to do. Um, but um, if you are going to drag us into war, you need to come back to the U.S. Congress. You have been out front in your concerns about reports that Russia may have issued bounties uh, for the Taliban in Afghanistan to kill U.S. soldiers. And you and Senator Kamala Harris have now introduced an amendment to the NDAA requiring the Pentagon to submit a threat assessment uh, regarding Russian forces and proxies regarding their threat to U.S. personnel worldwide. Tell us a little about this initiative and how you see the threats to U.S. forces and interests from Russia in the Middle East, including in Syria. Yeah. So, you know, when the whole bounty story blew up um, um, and I, was, I went down to the White House and was briefed by the White House on the intelligence, um, you know, I think for a lot of people who aren't national security professionals, they didn't realize the extent to which Russia participates in nefarious activities targeted at U.S. interests. Now, obviously, the intelligence surrounding the bounties 
is debatable. That I want to say very loud and clear. There is a legitimate debate and, and sort within the intelligence community about the veracity of that specific reporting. But what there isn't really a debate about in the intelligence community, and we've been briefed and I've re read all the classified assessments, it, you know, is that for a while now, the um, Russians have been attempting to thwart our interests in Afghanistan via relationships with the Taliban. Obviously, anyone who is in national security knows the wide breadth of things that the Russians do everywhere from the Arctic to Europe, um, to places like uh, Syria, um, even parts of Africa, where they see this sort of um, competition with the United States and attempt to, to thwart what we're trying to do. Um, what the, the joint project that myself and Senator Harris, um, our amendment that we put out, is not actually specifically about the bounty. We just realized there is not a single report to Congress on Russian threats to the U.S. military. And we wanted that to be transparent. We want the average person to understand that while you may see a summit on TV, what's going on behind the scenes is way more extensive than they probably imagined. Obviously, there'd be an unclassified version and, of course, a classified annex. So that's what we've asked for. Um, for me, the issue was never just the specific intelligence on alleged bounties. The issue was that while this information was coming in, this questionable intelligence, the President of the United States between March 30th and June 3rd spoke five times to Vladimir Putin. And what was hard for me as a former National Security Council staffer under Obama, yes, but also Bush, was how can it be that the president is spending so much time with, with uh, Vladimir Putin and in fact working on uh, supposedly bringing him back into the G8, he said so himself that he's entertaining that, that no one thought to say, Mr. President, we want to just make you aware of this intelligence. We're running it down. We're trying to get a fuller assessment from the intelligence community. But obviously, the direct payments for targeting U.S. forces would be an escalation. And we want you to have that in mind as you think about becoming closer and closer with the Russians. That's what I keep getting stuck on, is that it's not like the president wasn't engaging with the president of Russia at the same time. So um, we put in this amendment just to make the point that we should all be clear-eyed about the Russian attempts to thwart and target and engage the US military either themselves or more likely through, through proxies. We're seeing that um, obviously in Syria. I mean, the picture, I mean, most Americans I don't think saw it, but I cannot get past this idea that as we hastily pulled out of outposts in Syria when the president allowed the Turks to come over the border, um, like sitting around and watch, like Russian soldiers in our former bases, literally eating our cereal that we had left in our hasty move out. Um, I don't know anyone who grew up in the Cold War the way that I did who likes to see that. That is um, personally annoying, but strategically uh, a real problem. And Russia, we know, is using Syria as a strategic leverage point on NATO um, with missile defense assets um, and radar assets aimed right, you know, poised and positioned right there at the southern flank of NATO, uh, but also as a seaport um, on the Mediterranean, gives them good access. And then they largely, you know, control much of what goes on in Syria now. So I think we have to accept that the Russians um, are back in the game 
um, in the Middle East in a way that we hadn't seen them in a while. And that comes at the expense of our interests and certainly the access um, of the U.S. military. Does the amendment have uh, support uh, from the Republicans and do you think it's going to stay in the final bill? Yeah, so we negotiated it um, with the Republicans so that um, it's something that they supported. Uh, it, we edited it slightly um, per their um, requests, but otherwise we have the support at least of the Republican Hask members. Um, and I think, listen, a lot of the, the people that I serve with on the House Armed Services Committee, Republicans, are just as concerned about Russia as I am. Um, and so that's why I think you'll see it um, get voted on this week and move swiftly through. And I hope that it stays in the final conference bill. You know Iraq so well, uh, having served there three times and kept up with the issue as an analyst, as a Pentagon official, and now as a member of Congress. What, what should be the U.S. priority for the next round of the U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue? How can mm -hmm. we help the government there take the steps that we want to see them take? Mm -hmm. You know, it's an interesting thing because I was involved in the SOFA negotiations back in um, 2008, and I actually um, drafted the strategic framework agreement that eventually passed and that is now being looked at and opened up. Um, uh, the strategic dialogue is a good thing. We want to be talking at high levels with the Iraqi government. I think it's very important to understand that we are in Iraq um, at their um, request and approval. It's not that we, you know, as the country that overthrew Saddam, get to just be there if we want to be there. Um, so it's a relationship that we have to nurture. And, um, um, and for me, something the Iraqis have always been very vocal at, but the United States is like, it's hard for us to, to manage this is, you know, we would say, hey, we're giving you training and, and you know, of your security forces and support and you know military assets and stuff that to help you succeed and the iraqis would always say that's great we need that but that's not what the public wants the public wants access to your schools and cultural institutions they want to do um, economic exchanges they need help on our economy we want help building up um, our business community like they want the soft power of the united states just as much as they want the hard power um, and that's always been a challenging thing for us as a, an American interagency to say, well, we're interested in Iraq because we don't want it to be overrun by terrorists or by Iran. Um, and they're interested in us because of our way of life and our education and our training. And how do we um, see all the tools in the toolkit um, in relationship building? Um, it's, it's something that I think um, you know, a, whoever the next administration is should really be doing some thinking on because our greatest assets um, are, are, you know, we have the best military in the world and I want to keep that. Um, but some of our best assets are these softer, softer opportunities and powers that we have. We just need to wield them in a more thoughtful and strategic way. And that's what I hope for in the strategic dialogue. The NDAA also includes some restrictions on aid to Saudi Arabia in support mm -hmm. of its war in Yemen. Uh, and Yemen has been labeled by the UN Secretary General and, and others as the top humanitarian crisis in the world. Do you 
support conditioning aid to Saudi Arabia? And how do you see the U.S.-Saudi relationship? Yeah, so this has been a long road as someone who was at the Pentagon and had the Middle East in her portfolio. Um, I was there when the war, when the, the Saudis um, got their new minister of defense, who's now the crown prince, and within 30 days began a war in Yemen. Um, and um, there's, you know, we've had at this point, uh, half a decade or more of engagement with the Saudis on their deeply problematic targeting of civilians in Yemen. And it went from um, cooperation with a close partner to pulling back some of that coordinate, uh, coordination, to removing much of that coordination. And this is a continuation of this pullback um, because of their resistance and refusal to prosecute a war um, frankly, in line with international standards. Um, and um, to be honest, I mean, I lived um, uh, a lot of the security issues that people talk about in that region, right? The worrying about Al-Qaeda in, um, in, in Yemen, worried about Iran's influence. Um, we always have to be able to coordinate and work together with our partners on those threats that specifically threaten us or our allies. That does not mean we should be in a position to provide intelligence to help the Saudis prosecute careless targeting of civilians. So for me, um, that amendment was, was changed from the first time that it came to the House floor. I appreciate um, that uh, Representative Ro Khanna, who's the author of that amendment, um, engaged me and asked what could be changed in order to make it viable. Um, and I gave him my suggestions and he changed it, um, which I appreciate. Um, and that is currently in the House version of the NDAA. It will be, it's an open question whether it will survive conference with the Senate. But what I think is interesting is when both the House and the Senate um, sent um, a bill to the president um, cutting off ties, he vetoed it, right? He vetoed it but he also changed the level of cooperation on the ground. So it had a demonstrable effect, even if the president decided to exercise a veto. You think the uh, Trump administration should be imposing sanctions on Turkey for purchasing the Russian air defense system, the S-400? Uh, I'm, I'm certainly, it's in my circle of things to consider, absolutely, because here's the thing, like Turkey went ahead um, and ordered the F-35 and um, purchased the S-400. Um, we had made clear, including myself, had made clear for years that this was unacceptable. They went ahead and did it. So to me, this is not just about U.S.-Turkey and our relationship. It's also about the signal it sends to every other partner and ally where we say, listen, like you're going to have to pick Russian systems or American systems. If Turkey can get away with this unscathed, um, then what's to keep lots of other partners and allies from doing the same thing when we say, hey, we want to negotiate with you on a deal, but it's got to be to the exclusion of today it's the Russians and maybe another time it's the Chinese. So I think it has an outsized impact um, on kind of our messaging across the world with our allies on the issue of arms sales and on what allied relationships mean. Um, and the Turks have a choice. They've always had a choice. They've made some bad choices. Um, and uh, I am certainly willing to consider stronger steps um, to uh, send a signal to them, but also to the rest of the world. 
we've been seeing what we might call semi-covert actions against Iran's nuclear missile programs, perhaps taken in whole or, or partly by Israel, of course, which wouldn't confirm such reports. Uh, how do you see those actions? Do you think these are positive steps to degrade Iran's concerning programs? Or are you worried about escalation that could result from them? How, what's the context, as you see it, of what's happening there? Yeah, so to be completely transparent, I haven't received the brief. So what I, um, I just got back into town, we're just starting a new week. And what I have seen is largely what's available in press. And um, obviously, as someone who was an Iraq Shia militia analyst and watched the Iranians um, for a long time because of that, um, there was a lot of things going boom in the past month, a lot of things, more than we're used to seeing. Um, I, I haven't obviously seen damage assessments. I don't know exactly um, how effective they were. I don't know who um, carried them off um, uh, or carried them out, excuse me. Um, and you know, I, I think that, um, uh, again, in a cynical way, there's a discussion about whether this is being carried out now um, because they, the future of the U.S. presidential election is in question. Um, I don't like to think that way, but um, that's certainly something I've heard in the ether and in the halls of Congress. Um, you're always going to risk escalation. And I guess, I, again, I'm personally connected to this because, you know, my son-in-law's unit is the one that was at El Assad Air Base that got hit with ballistic missiles by the Iranians. And, you know, a hundred of his folks in his unit had um, injuries due to that. Um, thank God no one was killed. This is real stuff. This is not theoretical. Um, and um, what I'm concerned about is this administration's ability to manage escalation, right? So I may um, support the intent of some of these operations. Um, you know, certainly I'm not a fan of the Iran nuclear program, but um, do I trust that this president has strong links to the Iranians so that we can manage a conflict? Do I believe that, that we could have been in a very different situation after Qasem Soleimani was killed if, for instance, those ballistic missiles had hit and killed 10 American soldiers? You, you see a situation very easily where um, escalatory moves get out of control and suddenly we're in a new war. And for as much as this president says he doesn't want to be in new wars in the Middle East, I don't put it past him to, to open up that possibility. So especially in the next you know, six months. So um, uh, I don't have special knowledge to provide on that, but I do risk a cycle of escalation that I don't think this administration is well trained or well prepared to manage. This election seems to be shaping up on domestic issues. COVID-19, unemployment, social justice. Is national security in the Middle East on the minds of your constituents? Do people want to step back from commitments in the region and in foreign affairs more broadly to focus on matters at home? You know, it's interesting that you ask this question because as someone who is in the national security world and is now a member of Congress, my views on the national security world, the national security establishment, those of us who are specialists in foreign policy has really changed. Um, and what I would offer is that um, we're gonna have a problem if we keep seeing the world in terms of you either care about domestic policy or national security. If you care about a strong 
principled role for American leadership in the world, you need to care about what's going on inside the country and be up on it, um, just like you are on national security. If you care about the American role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, vis-a-vis -vis Iran, vis-a-vis -vis Saudi, um, it is connected to um, understanding the pulse of domestic politics and where people are feeling, not just in Washington or in New York or in California, but in the middle of the country. And so I guess I would just challenge um, this idea that somehow the COVID global pandemic is not a national security issue, right? That our divisive politics that are splitting us apart is not intricately connected to how strong of a role we are or are not able to play on the world scene. And what I would challenge your, your listeners to think about is what has the national security world, what have the thinkers in foreign policy done, not just to, to wait for domestic politics to care or domestic citizens to care about national security, what have you done to engage the public and explain why national security and the Middle East is important to them? flip the paradigm. How many talks are you giving, you know, are your listeners giving in the middle of the country? How many interns from places, you know, from state schools and places that aren't kind of the foreign policy establishment have you taken into your organization? Think about what you can do to explain why Middle East policy is important for national security in the United States. Because if we don't increase that connective tissue, you're going to see, at least from my part of the, the world, a more and more isolationist generation getting older and taking up important positions and saying, you know what, I don't believe that there's a difference between American leadership in the world and Russian and Chinese leadership. I don't believe we should be engaged in places like the Middle East because we're bad at it, right? That's what I hear every day from my students at Michigan State University. So I would just turn it around a little bit and challenge your listeners um, who are all national security wonks like I am, um, to reverse the paradigm and think about what you can do to educate people in, in non-traditional parts of the country on why Middle East national security is important to them. Congresswoman, that is a fitting and challenging response that the choice between national security and domestic policy is a false choice. And you have given those of us involved with national security and regions like the Middle East some homework to continue or accelerate our efforts to make those connections. That's part of our central mission here at El Monitor. And it's also a reminder that American security and prosperity depend on making those connections absolutely clear and that we need to be engaged in our communities and in the world. So thank you. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, for your time and a great conversation today. Likewise. Thank you, Andrew. We'll be right back with a few takeaways from my conversation today with Alyssa Slotkin and some closing remarks after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, Al Monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, 
was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. Welcome back to On the Middle East. Alyssa Slotkin gave us a lot to think about today regarding U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. I'm only here going to mention two takeaways from our conversation. First, the efforts to revisit the authorization to use force in the region is way overdue, and not for partisan reasons, and not even necessarily because of concerns about the Trump administration going to war with Iran. That's not it. The existing resolutions are simply out of date and speak to different conditions, different times, different threats. In congressional action and oversight on the use of force and on the U.S. policy in the Middle East more broadly, of course, all that matters for those Americans asked to serve in the region and for Americans who aren't necessarily serving in the military but need to understand better what the stakes are for the United States in the Middle East. Second, Representative Slotkin was right to remind us that how we conduct ourselves as citizens in our communities and as global citizens and leaders, these are all of a piece. They can't be disentangled or separated. And in that score, it was really encouraging to hear her re- refer throughout her talk to the bipartisan committee and spirit of the House Armed Services Committee and another uh, initiative she's been involved with on the Hill. Too much attention is often focused on the divisive and coarse nature of our politics. That seems to sell in media and be a staple of social media, but often left out are the many positive examples of members working together in both parties, compromising and getting things done. And we heard about some of that today. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. I will be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other All Monitor podcast, On Israel with Ben Caspit, at your favorite podcast platform.